Hi there, welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast, the podcast for curious professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Levsch, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Skiff Meetings. In this episode titled Building Engaging Communities, I have the pleasure of speaking with Liz Latham, the co-founder of The Community Factory. We talk about things like unconferences and spontaneous think tanks. We talk about why the stories behind brands are more important than the name. We talk about how to provide great networking at events who must design events for connection. We talk about sponsor activations and how they need to be designed into the core conversations. And we talk about why communities need leaders and the other core components that every community needs to be successful. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast. You can find them on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Skift Meetings podcast. And I'm delighted to have Liz Latham joining us today, the co-founder of the Community Factor, I believe. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So excited. This is uh, always a pleasure to speak to Liz. Uh, we've uh, known each other for a little while and I've uh, followed a lot of Liz's journey. But I'd like to, Liz, to introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Um, take us through your career. And I, and I always like to ask you to start at the point, if you remember, where you discovered the events and meetings industry. Because I think for a lot of people, this isn't an obvious industry that you sort of learn about in your childhood. This is something that sort of becomes apparent at some point. I don't know if you remember that moment and then take us through what you're doing now. Yeah, I actually did learn about it in childhood, hilariously enough. Um, my mother was, my father was in sales, global. He um, was in the metallurgy, metal, copper mining industry. And I traveled the world with him as a kid. And he would go to trade shows, obviously within the industry and go trade show trick-or-treating and come home and bring me all the squishy balls and all the things. And so I used to always think that trade shows were super cool because it's where my dad went to go to get cool things. And then my mom was in sales for the merchandise, at the merchandise mart for a gift store. And she sold these like trinkets, Christmas ornaments, whatever they were to gift shops. And she would work at the Atlanta Merchandise Mart and have to go set up the booth and hang up all the Christmas ornaments and take orders. And as a kid, um, the other owner of the place was also had a kid my age and the two of us would help set up the booth and work all the things and take the orders. And so even as a kid, I was doing these things around trade shows and events. It did not spark my interest in trade shows and events. I just was drawn to the energy of it and really loved it. And then when I went to college, I went to a journalism degree thinking that maybe in public relations or in somehow there was this storytelling kind of mold that I was going toward. And turns out there were events in PR which ended up being really fun. And so when I graduated, I went into marketing and journalism and media relations and kind of took that path, but fell into events when I was at my first company at NI, a tech company here in Austin, 
everyone at the company had to work on the user conference. And so I got my, my first taste there. I was in charge of registration. I was 23 years old, straight out of college and in charge of registration for this 1500 person user conference. And it was just amazing. And the adrenaline rush and all the things. And I was hooked. <laughs> all right. And what about, so question about your childhood. Sounds like there was a lot of tchotchkes in your life at a very early age. Is that something that you've kept? Do you still collect them or have you sort of gone the other direction and you kind of stay away from them? I do still have them. Hold on one second. I'm going to move out of the screen for a second to grab something for you. Uh, oh, no, I'm not. My children stole it. Okay, so I still have, <laughs> I have this um, squishy computer that I got when I was in college from the CIA when they were recruiting people to be analysts <laughs> out of college. And uh, it's so amazing. On the bottom of it, when you turn it over, there's a bug. It's bugged. It is the best <laughs> giveaway that I've ever gotten in my life. I've had it for 25 years now. <laughs> but I do, I know we talk about swag and swag has a bad name, but like it truly does mean something when you do it right. And when it's something that's impactful and it's something that even if you're giving it to your kids, it's kind of a memento of it. So I don't think we should dismiss swag. It's a shareable moment that truly does drive community. Here's me talking about community at the beginning, but I, it does something and it's, you know, don't do crap, but you know, do good stuff. <laughs> it sounds like the, the swag that kids will enjoy is, 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 is kind of a winner, right? If it's something that's, that's kind of fun and that the kids would, would pick up as well, I mean, that's going to stick if around. If the kids will like it, the parents like it too. It makes the parent look like a hero. You know, why, why dismiss it? Exactly. Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> so take us through, you know, you didn't study events, so to speak, but you definitely had a lot of involvement with events at a really early age. But take us a little bit through your career, because I know you've had some, some corporate jobs, you'd also set off on your own and done some pretty cool stuff. So take us a little bit through that. Yeah, I'm 20 years corporate girl. I figured I would always be a corporate girl, Dell, IBM, a few other companies in there. Um, I was in the association world for a while in trade associations. That's where I got my CMP because, you know, we really focus on education and the association side. Um, and so I, I got to manage education programs and large conferences at Dell. I was the, the person in charge of creating Dell World back in 2011 and bringing that thing together. We had that first year, I think, 1,500 people at an event we put together in 68 days or something like that, 84 days. It was crazy. From the moment our vice president got Michael Dell to say yes to it, I think it was 84 days that we had to put the whole thing together, do audience acquisition, do all of it. It was crazy. Wow. And then on the day of the event, I recall, um, we're in the Austin Convention Center. We're just so proud that this thing happened. We had 1,500 people there. And Michael stands on the stage and he said, welcome to our first ever Dell World. I hope you remember this moment because next year will be three times as big. And I was like, oh, God. So I called the convention center immediately. I was like, Can I get the whole convention center next year? <laughs> so, it was fun. It was good times. Um, I love my corporate career. It was. Uh, and were you three really, times? Were you three times as big the next we year? We were. We were 6,000 people the next year. It was insane. That was a good, yeah. a good corporate prediction there. Good, uh, good <laughs> goal setting. I mean, we worked hard to hit that number, obviously. So it was it was a huge team effort, but it was super fun. Um, and then I went to IBM and it was, I left IBM to start an experiential agency with some friends. And that was probably the hardest decision I'd ever made because I loved my team at IBM. I had the best CMO. I had the best team working for me. It was really tough. And I was, my next step was on the executive path. And so to take that, that chance and go start a company with some friends and see how that worked. So I bet I kind of thought, well, you know, this was the perfect moment because nothing will always be perfect forever, you know? And if, if I'm in the spot where I love everyone around me, 
I could get a new CMO in three weeks and it could destroy everything. So I can't just hang out here because that moment is perfect and I need to stretch and grow. So jump to start this little experiential agency we called Hot. Um, and it's that grew to four different companies, 110 employees and just took on a life of its own. So I did that for four and a half years or so. So and tell then, me a little bit about the name, because I was always a bit a bit confused because yeah. you didn't spell it hot, you spell it hot, right? H A E. And then Okay, Ducky so um, two of my friends, Nicole Ashibodu and Tom Spano, and I had met at SEMA, the Corporate Event Marketing Association. We'd been going to that event for years and years and years. I was on the board of directors, president, all those things. And we were kind of chatting about how we really needed more conversation to happen at the event because they, we, the, you know, people brought in amazing speakers and the breakout sessions were fabulous and the little solution showcase thing was great. But what people love about that event is the networking and getting together. And there was never a time in the agenda for us to truly have peer to peer conversation unless it was over a networking event, which wasn't structured conversation. And so I ran one year a little unconference alongside some of the breakout sessions. And I remember. The survey results from that unconference were just where people actually got to talk to each other and try to solve problems was the highest rated session for the year. Um, but it was unconferences are very messy and tricky and hard to get event producers to really buy into because they're they're not by the book. They are very organic. And so the the board and the team was just kind of like, well, you know, we, you don't really know how it's going to go. So we prefer to stick to kind of something that we can predict and the sponsors will buy into it. So like, okay. So Tom and Nicole and I said, let's just do this unconference thing on our own. So I was researching cool words. I decided to call it Event University, Y-O-U. It was all about you. And they both said, that's stupid. So we didn't do that. And I <laughs> started looking at these words and I found this word dokimazo. It was the Greek word to try or prove that something is genuine. And I thought it was the coolest word ever. So I was like, Tom, Nicole, look at this dokimazo. We could call it dokimazo. And Nicole goes, that's hot. No, like, that's hot, like, hot, like, oats, like, that's hot. So then we were like, let's call it hot dokimazo. It's like, yes, it means nothing, but it means everything. It's like, it's elegant and high class and tells people like the, the hot part is like really cool. And then the dokimazo part is this word no one had ever heard of before. And we put them together. And uh, one of my friends, Jeff Haynes, that we started the agency with, I told him about what we were trying to do. And he said, you can't call it that. No one can pronounce it. And I was like, well half the world uses a computer named after a fruit. So people don't really care what the name is. It's what you do with it, right? So we did Hot Dokimazo while I was still at IBM. Nicole had her company. Tom was on the brand side as well. And we just did it as a hobby. And then um, when Jeff asked me to, to leave IBM and help start the organization, the agency with him, we pulled together the three of us that were starting it, something from our life. So I brought in the hot part from Hot Dokimazo. He brought in Rock, which was his college nickname. And then our chief creative officer wanted the word creative in it. So the agency launched with the name Hot Rock Creative. So we brought these things together, put Hot Dokimazo as a part of it, and started growing it from there. And then um, during the pandemic, we ended up acquiring a company called Eventworks out of LA. And Elisa Walsh came over to the leadership team. And from there, we kind of did a whole rebranding. We put all the companies together because it was getting confusing having Hot, Hot Rock Creative, Eventworks. It was like, what? So we just pared them all down, rebranded it Hot. And that was launched. <laughs> good. Very good. I, I have to admit, I always thought that there was a sort of Japanese connection to it. The Dokimazo to me Dokimazo sounds... Dokimazo sounds Japanese, right? Everyone yeah. says that. But this is Greek word. It's super cool. And, and I did not know how to pronounce it. Uh, I think Tahira and Dean was the first person that sort of pronounced it. I was like, okay, that's how you say it. Okay, that makes sense. 
I mean, um, our big thing, we even did a video asking people to try to pronounce it. It was so amazing. But our whole thing was, we don't care what you call us, just call us. Like, it's just about people <laughs> coming together. Good slogan. <laughs> I remember you did the trip to Italy, uh, which I think is still probably one of the most unique uh, events. Um, and I'd love to hear it in your own words. Yeah. And maybe we can dive into some of these sort of uh, I guess what it took to put that together, but tell us a little bit about what it was in the end. Yeah. So, okay. So Hot Dokimazo was created to be this unconference experience. It was all spontaneous think tank. You grab the, the big sticky notes, you invite people together to just write what their challenges are, fill the wall with sticky notes of what challenges they're trying to solve. And then we ask everyone to step back, look at that wall. And then if they've solved that challenge, write their name and phone number on it. And from that, we then curate what the conversations are going to be. We're like, hey, Bob has solved this problem. Five people have checkmarked it. Bob, would you lead a session on this challenge? And so the whole afternoon is then set to be these peer-to-peer conversations. No pre-planned agenda, only times. And then we set in what the content is. So after we did our first event in May of 2017 here in Austin, I rented out the Children's Museum. We had no idea if anybody was going to come. We threw a $200 price tag on it. And we ended up having 87 people from all over the U.S. fly in for it. And the only piece of feedback that we got was, next time, could we just have adult-sized furniture? Because we were at the Children's Museum. So we learned our lesson. And we did it again in uh, December of that year at the San Diego Children's Museum with adult-sized furniture. And at the end, everyone said, it was a day and a half. And I just feel like family. We've got to just have these reunions or something. This is so, I don't know how you have woven this magic to make us feel so connected in a day and a half. Um, and then the conversation of starting a family reunion after that, because everyone kept saying, I feel like family. I'm like, we should do a family reunion. And Nicole, with her brilliant brain, said we should make it a secret trip. No one knows where they're going. And that's where the idea was born in December of 2017, when we came up with this idea of a secret trip. So that's what we did. We invited 80 experiential marketers to meet us at JFK Airport, bring a passport, packed for six days, 65 degrees, and we told them nothing else. So we chartered a plane. When they got there, we revealed that we were taking them to Tuscany for the six-day spontaneous think tank experience and put them on a plane and whisked them away. We did crowdsourcing on the plane. We did the world's first rave on a plane. We got to, I got to be like a flight attendant because there are no rules on charter planes, which is super fun. <laughs> and, and we just had this magical experience. We had these villas in Italy and we started a WhatsApp group to tell people when the bus was coming to get them. And that WhatsApp group, that event was in November of 2019. The WhatsApp group is still active today. There, This morning, there were five posts wishing people happy birthday in there. People are RFPing in the WhatsApp going, I've got something coming up. Who wants to be in on it? It's crazy the connections that were created there. And that was really our first, I guess, seed planted in our brain that we had built some sort of incredible community. That magic could never be recreated, but it didn't have to because it had already happened and it existed. And so we can now start shaping how we we crafted that experience into other communities. So just want to clarify, Hot Takimazo is the agency that then became a larger agency, right? Or is the, the company that you built? Hot Takimazo was really just an event. Okay, so Hot Takimazo was just an event. Okay, and then the Hot Agency was, was mm-hmm. the company mm-hmm. that you formed around it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, it was. Yeah. And so um, around that crazy time of having uh, Hot, which was the agency, we also had Hot Spot, which is a music venue up here in Cedar Park. Um, We had a Hot Motor Works, which is a high-end luxury card company that went with kind of music venue, lifestyle and entertainment division. And then a company called Swag Hub, 
which is a, a non-inventory SaaS platform where you can build your own online store and you don't have to have inventory in advance that you put in there. It's all print-on-demand stuff. And so um, back in uh, last year, in what year are we in? 23. So in 22, we started um, separating some of the companies so we could the team could really focus on just hot because um, we were kind of supporting with the hot fund some of the other things. Um, and so once we started dialing back on those and sold the music venue and, and things like that, and it came down to just the agency, that's when Nicole and I chatted with Jeff and Elisa and the team and, and said, you know, I think that where you want to go with the agency, which is just magical and, and media and big events is absolutely cool. But what we really love are these spontaneous think tanks and this community building thing. So in July of last year, that's when Nicole and I separated from HUT and started the community factory. So they could focus on designing these incredible experiences and we could focus on what happens inside. And so that's what we do. So we still work with them to come in and do think tanks for their clients. Um, and we do them on our own. And now what we really focus on is helping. A lot of times it's event professionals who have created magical experiences and their leadership has said, great, keep that going all year long. And the event people are like, I'm not a community manager. I'm an event professional. And so that's where we come in and help bridge the valley of engagement between those major events. We can kind of keep that community going. Okay. So you are the community factory. Um, yes. So tell me a little bit about, you already mentioned this, the difference between the event management, event production role and the community management role. Because mm -hmm. I think there's, for a lot of associations and corporations, I think there's sort of assumption that the same people can kind of fulfill both those roles. And that may be possible, but can you kind of explain where those differences are and where, you know, the community management thing is is really unique? I think, you know, I spent my 20 year corporate career being an event marketer, event manager, event producer and creating these just beautiful boxes without really thinking about what happened inside the box. You know, the content team manages the content. I don't have to worry about the attendees once I've built their journey and built this beautiful box and now I'm out. Um, but, you know, as a as a participant in events, I recognize that when I go to them, no one paid attention to what happens to the people in the box. And, and so I just started creating these communities like we did at SEMA, you know, really focusing on what happens inside the box. And so I think now as an event professional, you don't have to pick one or the other. You can design the box and care about what happens in it, but you can separate it. It's like if you want to be an event producer or managing AV versus if you want to be a content strategist versus if you want to manage registration, you can pick a specialty within there. And I think that that's really a valuable thing to do. So if you care about designing events for connection and making sure that the networking event at the end of the night isn't just a concert, loud music and alcohol, but is more a shared experience where people are truly coming together to do something of value together and can form relationships that will last long after the event. Now you're designing more for community than just checking the boxes of what you would normally do at an event. And so I think that's kind of where the separation happens. I think it should go hand in glove. I really do think that the people that have chosen the community side of things should be working with the event producers to make that come to life. And the event producers shouldn't just rely on the content team to figure out who the keynote speaker is going to be and who the breakout sessions are going to be and run the call for papers because you're forgetting why people are coming to the event. And I think that every single survey I've ever seen says the number one people, reason people come to events is the networking. So why are we leaving that to chance? We just need to design it more intentionally. And so there's lots of elements to this kind of community idea. And, and there's also the sort of not event-related part of community, right? The, the chats, the whatever systems you're using to kind of keep people engaged all the time. Yep. Um, 
But what, what do you think the barriers are? Because I'm a big fan of this type of thinking, this time of event design, this idea of thinking about community. Why are planners and, you know, C-levels afraid of this? You know, it feels like the default is to stick to the standard. You know, let's put a stage in there. Let's have some big name speakers. Let's have the CEO talk. But I'm with you. I don't think that that's what people really remember or like the highlights, I think. So how right. do we, I mean, how do you've been, I think, more successful than most at changing people's minds about it. How do you do it? I mean, I think from having a corporate background, I understand what our objectives have been in creating those events. And I think that community is hard to, to track monetization. Community is hard to really, you can't see the pipeline and revenue from people having a great time together. You can just see a bunch of smiles, which looks great in the pictures and creates FOMO. But in the end, did it go into Salesforce? Could you track that pipeline and opportunity? So I think people hadn't really figured that out yet. We're starting to, and we're starting to talk about that more. And I'll talk about that in a second of how you can monetize your community. But I think the other part is community looks like too much fun. And so when you go ask for permission to go to an event and your boss wants to see what certification you're going to get or what CEUs you're getting, your boss doesn't want to know what people you're going to meet and how much fun you're going to have. But half the time you're getting way more value from the people that you met and the fun that you had, because those are the connections that are going to drive your career and help you drive business decisions. Suppliers are a huge part of the community. And you, we go to communities to find solutions and suppliers need to be there as long as they're not actively selling to you, but you want to make those connections to solve them. Um, but again, now that's kind of the monetization thing. The It's also community can be messy because it's very organic and you can't easily throw that up on a website and explain to people exactly what's going to happen because community is a feeling. Community is not a line item on an agenda. So I think those are kind of the three main Main challenges with putting it on the corporate side. Because from if you're building like at Dell World, right? The 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 main purpose of Dell World was to share product roadmaps, to share the future of the company, thought leadership point of views, and to make sure that the sales teams are able to meet with their customers. And it's a fantastic event. It is beautifully produced. And community had just in the beginning, at least, it was not a core value of why we were building Dell World. It was an, an afterthought. And it happens. Community was built and it was beautiful, but it wasn't, we didn't go into it to design that. So now I think that the ecosystem around those events are focusing more on community. So Dell World can still be the event that it needs to be for demand gen and, and customer advocacy. But when you permit the suppliers and you permit the, the groups within the company, which Dell has done a great job of doing, is allowing these ancillary events to get produced that is how you build community. It's the salesperson taking their 10 customers out to dinner. It's the, the partner, it's, you know, Intel putting together an amazing evening for some of their top clients. Those little communities that form around it, it's people. I like to describe the communities like that. Like, let's look at IMAX, for example. Is IMAX a community? That's a great question. I view IMAX as a neighborhood. IMAX is a beautiful neighborhood where the communities that come in are houses. And so you've got all of these other organizations that are coming in that are houses in this amazing, wonderful neighborhood. And IMAX is throwing a block party. All the people are coming out and having an amazing time. Once it's over, they go back to their houses and they have their own little things that happen there. And I think that you can all work together to form these different levels of community. The houses can have their little supper clubs and things that happen. And then we get together for the neighborhood block party again. So I don't think you have to be so rigid in how you define things. And I probably went way off track from what your original question was. <laughs> I mean, having worked at IMEX and witnessing this, I mean, I, 
I, I can dissect IMEX in all sorts of different ways. Like you have all the different associations and people that are very loyal to those associations. Those are communities. I also think that there's different communities on the show floor itself. You know, within destinations, there's sort of like communities of um, you know the salespeople and the kind of suppliers. Yeah. There's also, I find that there's a community of people that hang out at the uh, education area. Yep. And there's a community of people that hang out at the sort of hotel area that are very sort of procurement focused. Right. Those don't tend to mix. The procurement people kind of hang out in the hotel areas and visit the destinations and stuff. And then the education people hang out there. And yeah, they blend to some extent, but I think they're different communities. And then yeah. within that, there's there's hundreds of others, right? But I see those sort of big divisions. But that's what's beautiful. You find your tribe. You, you know, find the house you want to go to within the neighborhood. And I think that that's what makes them so vibrant. So we talk about monetization of communities and why it's so difficult. I think that the challenge that we have is a company starts a community oftentimes because they want those customers to buy more stuff. And they want those customers to tell more people to buy more stuff. And that's fine. That's great. That's what user communities are for at, at software companies, right? Bring them together, educate them, make sure they're completely enamored with your product, and we'll continue to add more modules onto whatever it is that you've sold them. So the what you should do within that, though, rather than coming in and constantly selling to the community or allowing suppliers to come in and sell to them is monetize it through specific campaigns you're running in the community. The community members are looking for solutions. And so when you can run a campaign, Campaign, give them early access to something, give them discounts, give them VIP treatment, let them opt in to those sales opportunities. Now you're actually tracking the pipeline and revenue that came from the community. And when you compare the 2000 people inside your community that answered that campaign versus the people outside of your community that you ran a similar campaign to, you'll see that there's higher conversion within the community. And so that's a way to kind of test and experiment and prove the value of your community. Let me see if I understood that correctly. So let's say you have an online community or whatever it looks like yeah. when you monetize when you work with suppliers rather yeah. than you know charging them for access or something like that what you're saying is that you need to work with them to find a special deal or something that makes sense to the community so that right. when you promote that it doesn't come across as transactional it comes across as hey these guys are cool they want to benefit the community and they're offering you X. And so, exactly. and then you let people opt in, get excited about it or ignore it if it doesn't make sense to them. Right, just partner with them more rather than say, I'm gonna host a dinner party and I would like you to sponsor it. You can come in, say a few opening remarks and I will put your logo on it. It's just, where's the true value in that? Okay, so I got to come into the dinner and I got to network with people while they were talking, but I have, feel like I read this term the other day called uh, community insertion. Like I came into this community and I like had to insert myself into here and then go sell to them. Rather than do that, we just did a community event um, night before last for Team CMO, a community I run, and the company called MessageBird was the sponsor of it. But rather than have them just come in and do that, they set what the topic of conversation was going to be. So we did this four course dinner and MessageBird was able to come in with a topic that was relevant to them, but also relative relevant to the people that we brought in. They were all direct to consumer CMOs. We want to talk about omni-channel messaging. So they're able to set up what the conversation is going to be. And then the dinner tables are just people actually talking about problems that they're trying to solve. That's 100% relevant to the people that came, 100% relevant to the sponsor that was there. And we all got value from it. So it was a beautiful partnership and collaboration. And more of them should be done that way. It takes more time. It takes a lot more time, but it's way more valuable. 
Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So again, just to clarify, rather than sponsor come in, do a presentation about something that might be related, you're actually putting the sponsor kind of leading the conversations or, or, or heading the conversations and suggesting topics. Yeah. And do you then tell the sponsors to sort of get out of the way and let things flow? How do you manage that? I ask them to facilitate the conversation. I mean, I think that they need to be a part of it. They're they're the ones paying for it. They should be getting value from it. As long as they're not actively selling and trying to do demos on last ask. Like we actually, at the dinner, it was so exciting. And we're like, actually, could you just show us a demo real quick? Because this is really cool. And people got really into it. So like, let it happen, but don't stand there at your kiosk and, you know, come over here so I can scan your, you know, it's, it's rather than making the sponsor, the, the housekeeping note that thanks so much for sponsoring the dinner, just truly bringing them in to be a part of it and having them understand that this is a community you're here to give value and get value and we can all learn so much together and when we did our wall of sticky notes at the dinner asking people's challenges they even put theirs up like i'm trying to get to 100,000 customers in the u.s like i'm like how can i do this i'm talking to a group of marketers help us understand how to break into the market so it was just beautiful conversation really interesting so yeah i, I can imagine that takes a lot more work and I imagine it takes yeah. a lot of work in the back end, right? Because you're trying to convince the sponsor, unless they're completely sold in from the start, which I think is hard. You're trying to convince them of the format, how it works, how to be part of the community. Um, and so let me ask you this then. The people that were involved from the sponsor, are they now part of the community? Um, yes. Even if they're not sponsoring the next dinner? Absolutely. I think they need to be part of the conversation. They need to be, again, from a, from a community member perspective, there's one thing to have a non-sponsored community that is, you know, no sales whatsoever. You can do that. And then the community members are absolutely paying to be a part of that and have true peer-to-peer -peer conversation without the sponsors. But the other communities that need to monetize through sales of events and through having sponsors in there, I think that those people that are coming into it understand that the sponsors need to be there for value. So you as a community manager have to figure out a way to make sure everyone understands the ecosystem will be healthier if the people seeking solutions can find them within the community. And the sponsors need to understand that we're in a community where if one of those people asks a question about a specific technology, like I'm looking for an account-based marketing software, that other members of the community will answer that question honestly, talk about pricing. They're going to have real community conversations and that the sponsor can't just jump in and go, I do that. Look at me. Here's my stuff. You know, So we have to have that code of conduct of how you help and support. And you can absolutely, as a sponsor, jump in and go, we do that. And if you'd like to learn more, reach out to me. You know, So there's, there's ways to, to craft that. Um, and then I think as a community manager, having the openness to have these people actually come directly to you and say, look, I have a question. I don't want people to know that I'm looking for the solution, but could you connect me to some of the people? So from that perspective, us having a list of sponsors that are part of something, you know, we're able to reach out to them and go, I actually have a community member asking this. Would you mind talking to this person? And it's super beautiful. Very interesting. 
Um, and what about bringing new people into the community? Is it always yeah. open? Are you always looking? Are you just limiting it to community members inviting other people? Because in my mind, there could be also an issue of sort of inclusivity or, or not inclusivity. Because if you're sort of saying, hey, the community works really well, some communities can feel very cliquey, right? Like you don't necessarily want to jump in or you don't feel as good jumping in if you don't know anybody there. How do you manage those kind of extremes and making sure it's sort of like a healthy, welcoming, but also exclusive to some extent in a positive way? I think it all comes from your community design in the beginning. That 100% depends on what you're trying to build. You can build, I mean, if you think about an association as a community, the board of directors being a part of that community where every year, every two years, you're going to have new board of directors members coming in. There is a process for onboarding them, training them, getting them in place. So there is that, you know, sub community within the larger association of how you manage it. Um, we ha I have a community called the Grown Up Girls Club, which is just a bunch of women in the Austin, Texas area that get together once a month to learn a new skill. We've learned Tai Chi and beekeeping and tarot card reading and ridiculous random things. It's a Facebook group and anyone who's in the community can invite someone they know to join in the community. So it's grown organically. We have over 400 people in the community. Only 10 to 20 of them show up at our monthly gatherings, but they that one just grew organically from people who know people who know people. And then we have something like our Ichi community, which is for event professionals, um, where it's open community. Anybody can join in and be a part of it. And the first ticket to entry is either joining the mailing list or jumping in the Slack channel. And once you're in there, you're welcomed and then you get invited to things. So I think that however you want to define the boundaries of your community, is how you should continue to run it. So there's the, the member onboarding. We don't really like the word onboarding because it feels very process oriented. It works for a board of directors, but for a warm, welcoming community, it's more of a member welcome. And what I truly love is I define the community members as fans or locals. Your fans are kind of your lurkers. They don't, they're not necessarily going to be active in everything you do. They may come to a few things. They they wear the stuff and they see other people wearing the stuff and they're like, hey, I'm one of those, you know, and it's it's this, they're outwardly, they're really proud that they belong. But as far as what they join in, either they don't have time, they're not that interested, they just want to feel like they belong, and that's enough for them. And then you have your locals who are in it. They're volunteering. They're coming to everything. They're telling everybody. They know who to meet, where to eat. They know all the stuff. Those are your welcome people. Those are when someone new joins in that you can reach out to them and go, hey, you know, Janet just joined. Do you mind reaching out and just saying hi to her? And they're there volunteering, getting super excited about it. And I think it's, I read, you know, the 80-20 rule. There's all that stuff. But I actually read recently, it's more like 1% of your community are truly locals especially if it's a big online community. It's a very, very small group, but you have to really nurture them and, and support them and appreciate them because they're the ones that are doing all the work and making everyone feel welcome. Now, not to go too negative, but what if one of these 1% people go rogue? Yeah. You know, start to oversell or just kind of, you know, start to develop um, in some way that the rest of the community doesn't feel positive towards. Yeah. Is there a sort of policing that has to happen? How do you deal with that? Absolutely. So it has to start with a code of conduct. So everybody knows when they come in what the feel of the community is. And if your code of conduct says no selling, then it's a very easy conversation to have with that person to say, really love your contributions. I think you'll remember that number one on our code of conduct is no selling. So here's how I think you should change your phrasing when you're reaching out to people to welcome them, you know, and just kind of have that. If you haven't had a created a code of conduct, go back and do it. Make sure it's on your website. Make sure it's tagged on the top of your Slack channel so that people understand how they're supposed to behave. Um, and if you haven't 
and you now need to, again, it just starts with a conversation. All the world's problems can be solved with a conversation, which is just explaining what we're trying to accomplish. And if they can't be a part of it the way it is, then you have to ask them to go their separate ways and invite them to create a community for themselves and, you know, refer them to me and I will help them create their own community. (laughs) (laughs) Does this happen a lot in your experience? I mean, have you had to have these conversations? You do have to have the, you have to have reminders. We had one of our early Hot Dokimazo events that we ran. Um, the only rule at Hot Dokimazo was no selling. And we had somebody who, when he ran his peer session, was 100% demoing and selling his product. And everybody came up to me afterwards and they were like, that guy, like that wasn't even a problem solving session. Um, and then every conversation he had, he was a, he was a business card Carl, right? Just handing out <laughs> cards to everybody. So we had to pull them aside and just say, hey, that's this one isn't really for that. Um, there's a couple of networking events you could go to. You could join a BNI network. Like there's some really great things you could do. That's not what we're about. Um, and then when he jumped in the online community, did the same thing. And we just had to say, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like you understand the vibe of this one. So thanks for coming, but um, we can't have you back. Boot. That was it. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you for explaining all that. And if there's anything else you want to go to community, it, it does sound like when you set up a community, you do have to think about a number of things. Uh, do you oh, yeah. have a sort of checklist that you sort of tell people that they have to do before, I guess, announcing a community or building a community? Yeah, I think first is the gut check on do you have the fortitude to do this for an entire year and feel rejected for an entire year before your community gains traction? Because it's hard. It's hard. People are so noncommittal these days. People just don't respond. They're, I don't know why. In fact, I just did a LinkedIn post today. I'm like, what is going on with people these days? I just can't figure out. Is the FOMO or JOMO or whatever is happening with people where they just don't respond at all. It takes time and effort and perseverance. Um, and so you have to really be ready for that. The second one is money. You do have to make sure that um, even if you're getting sponsors or if your company's paying for it, that you've got enough runway to not just try it for a month and then be like, well, nobody joined. So let's give up on it. You, you have to have enough money to sustain it. Um, but beyond that, we kind of view our four pillars of community that I think everybody can think through. And this gives you a good spread for your fans and your locals. It allows people to join the community at the level of their comfort and where they want to be a part of it. So the first one, your top of funnel for awareness, we call it the show. And that's, it could be a podcast. It could be a YouTube show. It could be a TikTok, whatever it is. It could be a magazine, whatever your top of funnel is going to be so that people not in your community get access to something that introduces them to the people in your community. So quite often the show is you interviewing community members or you featuring or highlighting some topics of interest by giving quotes and kind of bringing in those community members. The next one we call the site. And again, it could be a super expensive vanilla high logic, whatever that tool is, or campfire social. It could be a free Slack channel. It'd be a Facebook group, but it's a place where the people meet the people. And it doesn't mean go to your website and find your products. It is letting the people get together. The third one we call the series of gatherings, which I believe is the cornerstone of communities, and that's bringing people together. So that's your uh, in-person, virtual, whatever it is, could be supper club, could be annual conference, but it has to be the series of gatherings where the people can actually form the true connections that come from community. Um, The fourth one is the sounding board, and that's your small group. That's your five to seven people that are going to give you insights into what's 
actively hot in the community, what topics people want to hear about. If you have an association, it's your board of directors. They're your sounding board to really give guidance and direction to what needs to happen. And then finally, the shareable moment. So the shareable moments are the pictures from your events. They're the swag shop. They're the gifts people are giving each other. It circles back to the show. It's the snippets from the show that people in the community can share because they need as a part of the community to feel like they're getting value and able to share value to their network. So if you can feed them that content so that they can go share it, that drives more people to the top. So that turns your funnel into this beautiful flywheel. And now you have a community that's rolling. So thinking through that and designing your community with each of those pieces, you don't have to have all five. Pick the one that's important to you to launch your community and then build out from there. Yeah, I was going to ask about the show. I think that's really interesting. I think I don't see too many communities doing that intentionally, at least. Um, right. Why do you think the show is so important? I think you have to have top of funnel. It can't just be word of mouth marketing. And I, I think word of mouth is amazing, but you you need to have something out there that allows people to understand really the vibe and the conversations that are coming from your community. Um, you know, look at Julius Solaris. He's got the, the his bold push. You know, he's got all of the fire festival conversations and AI conversations and things that are out there. That's his show. People can come in. You don't have to be a member of the community. It's free to watch if you catch it live. And then that allows you to go search a little bit more and find out what's happening in there. You know, if you look at the associations, a lot of them back in the olden days had magazines that they would mail out to people. And that was their show. I would get my monthly magazine from whatever I was a part of. I still get it from what American Express, right? Right? the Departures magazine. And that's the show that I tune into to see where else can I go with my platinum card, right? And it allows me to share that with other people. So it becomes a shareable moment. You guys, we should go here to, how do you say it? Turks and Caicos? I've never been. I can't even say it, but I want to go there. It's pretty. So <laughs> there's a recurring theme to this episode, the things you don't know how to pronounce. Um, I think that's interesting, but I, I guess I'm kind of thinking how related should they be? Or is there, is that sort of uh, you know, is that an open question that you can kind of figure out as you go? What I mean is, you know, the community itself in many ways can be very attractive. So the idea that you have a show that's not necessarily the community or that's not at least the site for the community, right? That there's something else that's sort of like, in a way, talking about what the community stands for, or what the people behind the community stand for. I think that's quite interesting because I can see that being very transactional, almost like something that is all about promoting the community. But in right. some ways, I can see if they're less transactional, having more value where there's a podcast. So there's, like you're saying, like a YouTube show and then there's a community and they're linked, but they're not necessarily sort of always directly promoting each other or linking Absolutely. to each other. Yeah, we do it with our team CMO community. We have a show called The CMO Show with Kate Gunning. She's the former CMO of cart.com. We have a studio here in Austin and she interviews CMOs. They sit in the studio, they talk about your CMO superpower and they have these conversations. It's not directly tied to the community, but she does mention Team CMO at the end. We're kind of Team CMO sponsors the show. Um, and you know, it's monetized through other sponsors that can be a part of it, but it's separate and distinct. It is its own piece of content that people can tune into. Um, but from from that, those people that get interviewed, we invite them to be in the community or vice versa. We pull people from the community to be on the show. And so it sets the tone for the types of conversations we'll be having and then becomes part of that funnel. So if you go to the teamcmo.com website, you'll see the CMO show up there. Vice versa, if you go to the CMO show's website, you'll see that you can join Team CMO. So that's kind of how it shares with each other without having to be like, this is all about us and this is our show. Yeah, that kind of forcing people to do one or the other, right? 
Exactly. You mentioned the code of conduct. I think that's really interesting. I think communities just need a name or a vibe, but are there any other kind of prerequisites to setting a community up that you think are are worth like checking the box when you're when you're trying to figure it out? You need a leader. You have to have a person. It has to have a face. The community can't just be your product if you know of your software company. It has to have some sort of attractive character that people want to follow. When you get an invitation from a company's LinkedIn page, you ignore it. But when you get an invitation from the chief evangelist or the CEO or whoever directly from the company, you'll take a look at it and maybe you'll join. So you have to make sure the community has a leader. With associations, that leader could be the association president for the year, knowing that they're going to turn over year over year. That's fine. You just, you, you have to have a face for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so many people forget that. They think they're just going to go start a community because we're bringing people together, but they don't want to be the face of it. Um, and I think that's a mistake. I think you have to be willing and ready to allow people to get drawn to you. Um, and I guess when you're helping people with the community, you have to kind of explain that, but then get out of the way and let them be the, the face, right? Or let them step aside and choose someone else to be the face. And a lot of people will do that. They're like, actually, I don't want to be the one on camera. I don't want to be the one doing this, but, uh, but this community manager can do it. And that's fine if you want the community community manager to do it. Just know that they're not, they might not work at your company forever, right? If, if they're just a community manager, right? They've been hired in to do this. They can absolutely care and feed all of your members. But if they move on, then what's your backup plan? So we do have to have that conversation. Yeah, it's funny. You reminded me of a session I went to at uh, South by Southwest, uh, I think like seven years ago, where mm -hmm. it was a session like for social media and community managers. And it was all these social media and community managers kind of saying how interesting the job is, but how also sort of there's no kind of way up out of the job because you're sort of, you're involved in all these things. You see all these things, you kind of get a sense for the whole community. But then if you're just the social media person, there's no way up, right? You don't kind of go to CMO from there or anything like that. You're just like, but you're so in tune with everything that's happening around you. So it's an interesting place to be a lot of times. It is a very interesting conversation. And we used to laugh about that with the event professional world as well. Like at Dell and IBM, people would joke that events are a dead end job because people get into events and they never leave. And the truth is people never leave because events are so freaking fun. Why would you ever leave? You truly, like I, I was a part of every single department in the company because it all converged on everything that I did. And that was truly exciting. And, and I loved every moment of it. But the problem with so internally, there's the choice of I don't want to leave because I love it. Externally, there's the, oh, they're the event person, they're the social media person. So I think it is on yourself and your own responsibility to understand your career trajectory, because the things that I learned being in the event department allowed me to become a CMO when we had four companies at Hot and I was managing four brands and demand gen and all the things because I was connected when I was at Dell and IBM understanding pipeline, revenue, MQS, SQLs, the, the speed of business, the... PR, MR, AR, all the things that happened, I paid attention to that. I spoke in that language, not just talking about BEOs and you know the production schedules. And if you can speak the language of marketing and understand the language of marketing, you can absolutely go anywhere from any of those roles, which I think that makes events and social media and community, community management super exciting. The problem is then once you've gone somewhere, you kind of get out to where maybe it's not as fun anymore. <laughs> and so now you have to make the decision of, well, actually, it was really fun to be a community manager. Maybe I'll go back that way or maybe I'll go do that. So just live it as a jungle gym. It's not necessarily a ladder, right? Yeah, it's that kind of idea. It's the, the, the more senior you get in your career, the the less fun necessarily the kind of individual roles are. So It can uh, happen. It can happen. <laughs> 
So I uh, wanted to go back to something you mentioned, which I thought was quite interesting, which is that idea that events are fun, but sometimes it can be intimidating or it can be hard to get approval if you're seen as though you're going to do something fun. And it's yeah. something that, I, that I've noticed now that we're sort of post-COVID pandemic, you know, hopefully that's, that's not a situation we have to return to. I have a sense that we are also, you know, there's this pleasure trend. There's this idea of events being in sort of more attractive locations. You can bring your family or you can extend. Um, is there a danger that we're going too far? Because uh, I remember when, when, you know, when the financial crisis hit, there was this idea, okay, we have to prove the ROI of all our events and we have to get very serious about all these things. And we sort of figured out all these methodologies and worked out how we're going to make sure that the value of events is not discredited. And, and so I bring this up because I feel like if there is a big recession or if something happens, the event budgets usually are pretty quick to get cut. Sure. And Absolutely. So, Especially if they're fun, right? Exactly. Like, and oh, so yeah, no one that. I, I'm all for having fun at events and all for reuniting with communities. But how do we manage that? Because so many people have to get approval, have to get budget to go to events. And yeah. there is a real danger that you have to prove the value. So is there like a, a fine line there? Is there a balance? How do we kind of make that work for everybody? Yeah, I think we just have to reevaluate how we're designing the event. So it was one of the things that we did um, at HOT in, um, in January of all the years are a blur, 2022, I think. We took, the event was going to be in the Bahamas. It was at the Atlantis. How do you convince people that that is not just a total ridiculous junket. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take 40 people, 30 people and go to the Bahamas <laughs> for an event. And we're not going to use the convention center space. So we had to be really prescriptive about how we were going to do it because we also didn't want to take people to the Bahamas and stick them in a ballroom for three days and tell them, look at this beautiful place you can only see at night. So we switched the agenda all around so that we had the sessions in the early morning, all the sessions were done by 10. And then we had sessions again, starting at four o'clock, but we took the time in the middle to create the experiences that allow you to take full advantage of networking, shared experiences and the Bahamas. So you can, we did this behind the scenes of the Atlantis Aquarium and meeting the dolphin trainers and the Marine Mammal Center is like the largest rescue center in all of the Atlantic. And we got to go meet all of those folks and, you know, have these things. We, the, bomb squad the bomb dogs so they did a whole bomb dog squad showcase for us they'd never met guests that they weren't taking down before which was actually really exciting to see but like the moment of us seeing them be excited to share with us and this is all during the day and we still got our content we got our sessions in the morning and the evenings we didn't just come in and go well sessions are going to be from eight to five and then we're going to have our dinner on the beach and that's how you do an event so I think if you can provide that content value make sure it's very clear but then just redesign it for people to have fun that's not just loud music and alcohol. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's good advice. And I think there's a lot of communication that also has to happen, right? Not just the design of the event, but how you communicate it, make sure that everybody's in tune with what, what you're thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. So want to start wrapping up. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. I think it's been really good and you've shared so many great tips. Um, what are you most excited about for the community factory? I mean, are there any projects that you're working on that are super interesting or anything you can share? 
Oh my gosh, I love every single day that we come to work because every community that we work with is different. Some are longer term communities where we're trying to build in between events. They have an annual conference and then they don't know what to do in between. And so we get to work with those clients and figure out, you know, what, where are those virtual moments? What are those little things that we can do? And then how do you keep the Slack channel going? Do you need to keep the Slack channel going? Or is it just a place where people can pose a question and someone needs to answer? So having those strategic conversations are fun. Um, the really cool ones we've been doing a lot are people who have recognized that their field events are really boring. They're, uh, you know, what we used to call steak and storage when I was in corporate, where you just, you invite people to have a nice steak dinner and then you give a presentation. And how do we design those field events to be way more interesting and engaging and, and truly have a little bit of content, a whole lot of conversation and a whole lot of fun that people are leaving so they feel more like community events. Um, and then spontaneous think tanks are coming back, which I'm crazy excited about. I think that we, we took a big turn over the beginning part of this year and people pulled conversations away from their events again, because um, they're just so hard to manage. They're so hard to facilitate and no one has the staff to do it. And so they just, a lot of clients and, you know, event people in general went back to keynote breakout expo. And then they're all seeing in the survey results, we just wanted to connect with more people. So we're able to go into events that already exist and just add three hours of the spontaneous think tank conversation and bring the sticky notes and get people talking again. And it's honestly, it's the simplest thing in the world. And it's what gets me the most excited to get out there and do those because watching people connect and watching people leave with true value from meeting each other in a facilitated way, it just warms my heart. So that's what I'm most excited about. We're, um, we have launched the, the Ichi community, I-C-H-I. So the website is weareichi.com. Um, and that one, again, I like to find ridiculous meaning in words. So it came from this phrase, uh, Ichi, Ichi-E, Ichi-Go. Uh, which is one moment, one time. And that's what we all try to create is just this moment. So the community is all about us being one and it is 100% shared experience based. So we do supper clubs. We do um, back in June, we worked with the MGM to create this trip to Vegas, which was all stuff in Vegas you've never seen. Uh, they got us behind the scenes at the employee uniform control center. 9,000 employees delivered every single day to these people, mind blowing. We went behind the scenes of the Bellagio fountains, got to go on a boat in the fountains. They did a special fountain show just for us. We ate in the Aria employee cafeteria. We went to the MGM prop and decor warehouse to see all the behind the scenes. So those are the things that we're just trying to help people who want to connect outside of education only events and really have fun experiences. So I'm most excited about bringing that to life and, you know, finding more partners that want to do behind the scenes takeaway experiences with us like MGM did. Really cool. And that is a event planner community. Yeah, it sure. is, yep. Event and marketing professionals. It's free to join. So everybody can hop on in there and see what kind of experiences we have coming up. Okay, sounds good. And where can people find you, uh, the Community Factory, etc.? Yep, thecommunityfactory.com. I'm also all over LinkedIn, Liz Lathan. You can find me there and I post content just about every day about community and events and trying to help connect and get people together and uh, Liz at thecommunityfactory.com. Perfect. And last thing, I want you to recommend someone that we should uh, bring on the podcast because uh, we've, you've talked about so much interesting content and so many different concepts. Would, uh, yes. would love to get your recommendation as well. Yes, I would love to have you interview Elijah May. So he is my business partner in the Team CMO community, and he has a company called The Experience Firm, and he is all about creating insanely memorable experiences. He's been a part of a ton of South by Southwest events for many, many, many years. Um, really, really cool ones, and he's got some great stories to share. Love it. I'll definitely get his contact uh, from you, and uh, we'll make that yes. happen. Liz, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today and I uh, wish you lots of success and hopefully see you soon. Thank you so much. It was a blast.